Hello, I'm Gene Block, and you're listening to UCLA Radio. Hello, hello, hello. You are listening to UCLARadio.com. My name is Furkan Yalsin, and welcome back to another episode of Grind Mode. So as, as we do every week, this week we'll start off, start off with a little hot tip, hot tip of the week. Hot tip of July 11th. Don't be afraid to talk to strangers. Um, so an experience that I had this week on Tuesday, we were at um, we were hosting a comedy show at the improv space and some strangers came in and watched the show. We, they were the only audience members. And after the show, they um, started off with a nice little conversation like, oh, we really enjoyed the show, blah, blah, blah ask a couple questions. Um, and normally, you know, we'd be like, oh, thank you. Thanks for coming out. Goodbye. But I think th- that type of opportunity um, is an opportunity to um, that type of interaction is an opportunity to like um, build a connection with someone um, and just it, don't be afraid to engage in a conversation because you never really know who those people are, um, what what their background is. And that conversation that I had with this random stranger, he ended up working for a comedy app and we basically ended up exchanging information um, and, you know, we built a connection and we're going to be talking in the future about, you know, working together. So I think that's an, a perfect example of not being afraid to talk to strangers. And, you know, it doesn't really have to go anywhere. Um, it can just be a nice conversation. It's always nice to talk to people that you don't really get to engage with on an everyday level. Um, it's nice to meet new people and you never know where it's going to take you in life. So that's our hot tip for the week. All right. So as you know, we do interviews on the show and I think we got a very good interview for this week. Um, we have Mike July host of Westward by UCLA, digital philanthropist, and mind mover. Yes, sir. How's it going, Mike? It's going great. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, so for the people that don't know who you are, can you give us a little bit about a background about who you are, um, what you do? Just, you know, who's Mike? Who's Mike? Um, you know, I think for this audience, first and foremost, I got to say I'm a double Bruin. Hell yeah. So went to UCLA. I was a communication studies undergrad. I was trying to get into the music business. I was trying to get in at the time that Napster was just decimating the industry. They were trying to figure out what to do. They were flailing. So I did some great internships at you know Universal Music, Interscope, Maverick Records. Uh, but the industry was just in turmoil. They were trying to figure out you know what the path forward was going to be in this new CD-less digital era. And so... That didn't quite work out when I was graduating. I decided to move to Italy with all the money I'd saved up. I lived there for two and a half years, managed a bar, came back, wrote a memoir about that experience. And at that point, I thought, you know what? All right, time to give L.A. a a second shot. So I came back down to Los Angeles. Um, I was a self-taught coder. Uh, I've been into technology and computers my whole life. So I got into the media relations and public relations business here in Los Angeles for technology companies that served the entertainment industry. Did that for four, five, six years, I think. And then I went to UCLA Anderson, got my MBA. Um, And an interesting thing happened while I was in Anderson. I was communicating with their chief technical officer and I was saying, you know, there's some really uh, modern email tools that you guys should be using that I don't think you're using. Uh, You can set up preference centers. You can set up nurture campaigns. You can do all this stuff. As a student in the MBA program, I'm not seeing this stuff. I think you can do it. 
That email apparently gets passed along to a couple people, winds up in the hands of an executive recruiter who talks to me, reaches out and says, you know, UCLA's fundraising team, they're trying to do something new and different in the digital space. There's a lot of legacy programs, the phone program, the direct mail program. No one has really looked at fundraising through a modern sort of for-profit consumer lens here within the organization. Would you be interested we, in coming in? We saw what you wrote about you know, UCLA Anderson's email marketing. <laughs> they said, do you want to come in and do you want to talk about this role in the fundraising team? So I went in, talked to about seven different people over five, six days, um, got really excited about the vision of what we could build. As a double Bruin myself, you know, I'm really proud of this institution. I'm proud to have gone here. And I also am aware of the name brand that this organization, UCLA, holds. And I thought, you know what? I believe in this organization to wield that type of name brand and try to do something innovative in an industry that is ripe for disruption seemed really exciting for me. So I came into the position just over four years ago, I guess. Um, and we've been just, I've just been applying everything I know from the digital marketing space, working for these for-profit companies, uh, to what we do in the UCLA fundraising team, as far as the digital side of things goes. And out of that whole, um, sort of creative melting pot came this new program that we launched this last year called Westward. Uh, and you know, at this point we've been doing Westward for almost a year we are dedicated to uncovering research happening at UCLA that you can apply to your life. And as opposed to traditional sort of fundraising efforts that have come out of UCLA's departments where we ask you to look back on an experience you had as a student, um, we look, ask you to look back on a time in your life as an alumni, we're saying, you know what, we're going we're gonna to provide value to your, your current world. We're going to provide value to your current life. And you don't even have to have gone to UCLA to receive this value. Um, we almost look at it as a model similar to what NPR is doing, similar to what PBS is doing. You know, it's UCLA is a research institution founded on, on research that's happening without necessarily corporate interest, without, you know, outside interest impacting that research. It's, it's the creation of knowledge. It's expanding the world's knowledge. Um, if you want to contribute to that type of cause, and then at the same time, receive the benefits of hearing about some of this research that's happening here that you can enact tomorrow to improve your finances, your career, your relationships, your health. That's what this program's all about. Um, it's one of the first in, in this industry that I know of, and I'm just having a blast doing it. It seems like you've had a very exciting um, life until you've gotten to this moment where you are today. Um, you mentioned you were a bartender in Italy for two years. Yeah. Did you learn anything from that experience that you you know, apply to your life today or to what brought you to where you are today? So what I learned, I mean, Italy was crazy because I landed there with probably $5,000 in my bank account and I didn't know anyone. I had no relatives. Uh, I had no friends uh, on that whole continent. <laughs> and I think what I learned from that experience was to just follow the threads uh, of opportunities that sort of present themselves. Don't try to stick too closely to any predetermined script. Keep your eyes open for where the opportunity is and, and just follow it. And I mean, I just followed unexpected opportunity after unexpected opportunity for two and a half years. And it led to one of the richest and just most incredible periods of my life uh, without a game plan, just being opportunistic 
and uh, not trying to stick to some kind of predetermined script that I had for how my life would be there. I think that's a great hot tip for our listeners is um, there's a lot of opportunities that come uh, into your life that you don't expect. And it's the onus is on to you to like follow up on those opportunities because those opportunities could lead you to who knows where, you know? Listen, and, and what you open the show with, that hot tip of just talking to everybody and anyone and, and you know, trying to dig into what the people are about, strangers that you could just have a, a superficial conversation about the weather and then, you know, say goodbye. F- you figure out what they're about. That was my life for two years over there. What was crazy about Italy was that I just really wanted to become fluent in Italian and I wanted to live in a European capital city for as long as I could. Now, that meant that... I had a metric of success that was just converse in Italian, converse in Italian, converse in Italian. So I was doing just what you're saying. I was just going up to everybody, having conversations, anyone that would say hi to me, have a conversation, the cashier, have a conversation, everybody around me, I was having conversations. And that's where these threads of opportunities came from, right? It was all these people that I didn't size somebody up and say, okay, this person, I could maybe get this out of them. Let me go strategically talk to them. Uh, and see if I can extract some value from from this conversation or from this relationship. I was just open to talking with people and, and seeing what I could be pleasantly surprised with uh, in their responses. And and that's what just created the snowball effect living over there. I I hate this because um, I think you make a good point that you know networking is such a dirty word because people <laughs> really think of it like oh what can I gain from this person? People really think that's what networking is. Mm-hmm. But I completely disagree. I think it's just about being an open person to um, other people because people are so important and you really don't know um, what they can bring into your own life. And if you look at it in the sense that what can I gain from this person, that's just that's a really bad way to go about building your network. No, 100 percent. And, you know, everyone enjoys um, having their strengths recognized. And I think they really also appreciate or feel the most satisfaction when their strengths are being utilized. So if you can go into conversations and relationships with the agenda, quote unquote, of saying, I'm going to identify what this person's strength is, and I'm going to put that in my Rolodex for the chance that I'll have the opportunity to leverage their strength in a way that ideally complements someone else's weakness. I mean, this is a lot of this is, is organizational behavior from, from Anderson, from, from my MBA. And as what I do as a manager of a team every day, which is, you know, I need to figure out what people are, are most competent at, what they enjoy the best, what their strengths are. And then I need to organize them into little mini teams or working groups uh, or just the overall matrix of the org chart so that strengths are exploited, right? And weaknesses just get nulled away by other strengths. That's, that's the power of an organization. And if you can go into your networking thinking, all right, I want to try to figure out what these people's passions are, what their strengths are, and then I'm going to think of, in my mind, a way to matrix this with other people I've met where a strength can complement a strength, an interest can complement an interest. I think that's the best way to go about doing it. That's a very, very good point that I would love to circle back to uh, later in this discussion. Um, But to bring us to that point, let's um, talk a little bit about Westward by UCLA. Um, How would you describe... um, this to somebody this it I, like for someone who doesn't know what westward by ucla is yeah what is it so westward by ucla is essentially research happening at ucla you can trust it because it's happening at ucla it is study backed um it is field tested it is peer reviewed 
that then can improve your life. So UCLA has research that's happening, you know, on the oceans, on outer space, on robotics, these incredible fields. And that's what makes this institution so amazing is, is the work we're doing in all these disciplines. However, not all those disciplines you can apply to your life tomorrow. So our job is to uncover that research for you and then present it to you in a multi-sensory, multimedia fashion, right? So we do hour-long video interviews that you can listen to or watch, private YouTube links for members only, previews on our YouTube page. We have a members-only Facebook community. So this is only if you're part of the program, only if you're you know paying attention to the material. You can get in, you can share your thoughts on what we're reading, you can share your thoughts on what we're watching, you can share just your, your experiences with the topics that come up each quarter when we rotate through a different area of research. So it's Facebook group, it's uh, video interviews, and then the third component is faculty-authored mainstream books. So we look for, for faculty that have books available on Amazon, that have books available just in general booksellers, because we know textbooks, they're powerful, but they're really dense. And we want researchers that have been doing the deep dive research for years and years. They're the experts, but then they've gone through the process of working with a publisher or working with an editor to distill all those dense peer-reviewed journaled learnings into something that the layman picking up this material for the first time can understand. So through Westward, we're curating faculty-authored books, a members-only Facebook community, hour-long video interviews with faculty. You can even send in your questions in the weeks leading up to the video interview for the faculty expert, and I will ask them on camera. So your question on any of the topics that we're covering, you can send in your question, and I'll ask them on camera your question. He'll answer it on camera. She'll answer it on camera. And that type of access to these leading minds is uh, that alone, I think, makes this program worth it. But you know, in a nutshell, that's what it is. And I think the the distilling of these dense um, textbooks is something that's very important. And I noticed on the uh, for anyone that's interested, you can follow Westward by UCLA on Instagram, Westward by UCLA. Um, and on the stories that you have, you I think go a step <laughs> further and you distill it even more. Yeah. Where you post these um these um quotes from yeah. these books. Yeah. So you know, th this sort of leads into the whole positioning for the social media. And this came very naturally to me. So I'm a big nonfiction reader to begin with. And whenever I would read a nonfiction book, a lot of it is very descriptive. So they'll tell you what the industry research says. They'll tell you what the studies say. They tell you it's just very descriptive. It's not as prescriptive. It's not as action oriented. So a lot of times what I'll do with nonfiction books that I'm reading is I'll read them. I'll take a whole bunch of notes in my notepad while I'm doing it. And then at the end of it, I will summarize some key points in action phrases. So as opposed to the descriptive to the prescriptive. All right, so based on what I've learned in the descriptive areas of this book, these are some actions I should take. And I was doing this for all the books I was reading anyway. So when we started getting into some of these faculty authored books, I just applied the same, the same process to it, right? I'd, I'd read the books, I'd read the descriptions, I'd read the learning from, learnings from the studies, and then I'd start writing action phrases. And I thought, okay, this is something we can build an Instagram profile around. This is some, some value that we can tease out in front of the paywall to show that this is legit, to build a relationship with an audience, 
and it came very, very naturally to me. And, you know, Instagram is tricky for a, a program like ours that is education based, that is um, science and technology based, that is psychology based, because Instagram is a very visual medium when it comes down to it. That's why you see so many, you know, fashion, travel, makeup, all these very visual personal brands. Quote accounts, however, is a space on Instagram that has found some success. And so I thought, okay, this is a niche we can carve out for this type of account where I'm going to do the same process with the nonfiction books, with the Westward picks, the Westward books. It's going to establish a relationship with our audience. It's going to offer value in front of the paywall. And it's something that came very, very naturally to me anyway. And these books that you decide to read with your, um, do you have a name for your um, your subscribers or the people that are members of this community? Yeah, I mean, we, we just call them members. We members. call them our Westward members. Yeah. And, and collectively, we're the Westward community because that Facebook group, it really does feel like a community when you're in there, you know? And I think community is something like community is like the most important thing for people to feel um, a part of something because, you know, the world is such a lonely place. Um, and finding people that have the same interests as you, which is why I love UCLA Radio because it's a community. At the end, you know, we're a radio station. We put out content, but there's a lot of people that have this. We're all so different, but mm -hmm. there's this common thread of like this. Like this is so unique that we can <laughs> like click two buttons and we can have this conversation, mm -hmm. and hundreds of people can like listen to us have this conversation, which yeah. is absolutely so cool. And the fact that there's this community around this just makes it something that you want to be a part of. So I think that's very important. That's how you form relationships is through shared experiences. You absolutely. Know? Um, so these books that you, um, so you've got, you all have done uh, three books so far. Um, how do you, how do you all um, decide which books to use? And then when you are picking your book, do you talk with the authors or the co-authors co of these books and schedule the interview ahead of time before you begin the book reading process? Yeah, I mean, to, to really simplify it, we're just looking, we're rotating research subjects every quarter. So every quarter, it's more than just the book. We're saying, what is the subject matter that we're tackling this quarter? So for the first quarter last uh, fall, we were looking at motivation. And from motivation, we connected with Dr. Sean Young, who runs UCLA Center for Digital Behavior. And Dr. Sean Young had a book, Stick With It, that's all about leveraging psychology and psychological triggers to stick with new habits, whether they're financial, whether they're fitness, whatever the habit might be, quit smoking. So we sort of look at the subject matter then over the, the following three months through these multiple mediums. We'll be reading the book together as a community the whole three months but even if you don't have time to read the book, we're discussing the same subject matter in, in the Facebook group for the three months. It all crescendos to month three now that we've all explored the topic for the first two months together and we'll have some intelligent questions to bring to the faculty expert. I sit down with that faculty expert sort of representing the community, representing sort of a synthesis of some of the through lines that I was seeing in the questioning or in the dialogue happening in the Facebook group. And I will represent the community in saying, how can we apply what's in your head, Dr. Sean Young, to our day-to-day -day lives as commoners, right? As non-subject matter experts in your field of expertise. And so we just repeat that cycle every three months. We did motivation in fall. We did uh, mindfulness in winter. We just finished a really interesting one with Dr. Alan Castell, who does both uh, memory and aging and sort of the intersection of those two, how to stay sharp cognitively as you age. And so the book is one piece of it, 
But I look at it really as these three months chunks of us looking through multiple mediums, multi, multiple sensory uh, formats of exploring a topic and how we can improve it based on science, based on research, not just opinion. Does the topic come first or um, the book come first? Yeah. You know, the books really do inform uh, our potential topics because we do want that to be a core component. So we will start with searching on UCLA faculty, current faculty who have books on Amazon. The books then, you can tell so much from these workshopped covers and titles. You know, they have these great publishers and editors that are working on saying so much with visuals and then copy on, on the book, book jacket. So we can gain a lot about what the potential topic would be and how we would position it to our audience from that book cover. So that is really an inspiration point. But then we wanna see, you know, do they run a laboratory? Are they still active? What courses are they teaching? Would they be compelling as an interview, right? So the first step I would say is the books only to, to weed out who's even possible to distill their area of expertise into layman's terms. Baseline, you know, is having gone, gone through that publishing process. And then we look deeper. And then we sort of rank. We even look at, you know, seasonality. Uh, you know, right now we're doing... <laughs> this fascinating book called Engineering Happiness from a UCLA Anderson professor that's all about this concept of can you model happiness? Can you put it into laws? Is it a choice? Can you work on it like a skill? Can you build it, right? But happiness felt like a summer topic. I'm not going to give away what we're doing in fall yet, but it's going to be more of a fall type mm. topic. So, you know, we have a slate and we're thinking about seasonality and we're thinking about times of year and then we're thinking about, you know, who to put next to who in the, in the schedule. So it's a whole process of its own. That's very interesting that um, the seasons kind of um, impact um, what what you guys cover. That's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, would, I would not have thought of that. Yeah. Um, you know, like all the feel-good movies that are coming out in the summer and the big blockbusters and then, you know, all the uh, Academy Award nominees come out in, like, fall. There's seasonality to media like that, you know. People, people are in a certain mindset. We're trying to match it. And just not to get too into the weeds of it, but um, – so once once the book and the topic is like you you've picked, I love this book. I want to use this book, mm -hmm. um, and then the process goes to reaching out to the author. I would assume and get their permission. Yeah, I mean we want to make sure that just most importantly they're available in that third month of the quarter to sit down with us for an hour, hour and a half, and really get into it and have a deep discussion. So. You know, one professor that we were looking for for spring was like, listen, I'm on sabbatical. Reach out to me next year. Nothing we can do about that. Yeah. But hey, if they're on staff, they're, they're, they're current faculty, if they're available for an interview in month three of the quarter, most of them are ecstatic to have this type of visibility into their work. I mean, you know, in our, in our interview with Alan Castell, some of these researchers, he's so used to being scrutinized by the peer review process in mm. a good way, which is part of publishing and part of, you know, academia and part of part of research is that peer review process and having people just poke and prod and 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 to have someone come in and ask just really common person questions about applying this to their day to day lives, to, to making it actionable, to taking action on it. I mean, I really, he came to me afterwards. He said it was so refreshing and fulfilling to hear people taking the work and they're going to go put it to use. They're going to experiment with it. They're going to play with it. They're going to try to improve parts of their lives with the work that he's done. 
Um, so, so far, knock on wood, we've had a really great response from faculty at UCLA. It's been a great experience for everybody, the community, for me, for the faculty. It's been fantastic. And um, you've touched on this a little bit, but um, how close is um, the Westward uh, brand's relationship with the UCLA institution? How closely do you, do you all work together to create this? Um... Yeah, I mean, we... I mean, I'm fundamentally within UCLA, so I'm a part of UCLA. Uh, Westward to us, we felt like it had to have somewhat of an independent name because we didn't want to imply that you had to have gone here um, as a student, that you had to be an alumni to be part of this program or to be welcomed into the community. Uh, when we were talking, you know, before we came on, I, I alluded to, you know, Harvard Business Review. You don't have to have gone to Harvard to be a business person that you know respects that institution, subscribes to the magazine, gets a lot of value out of it. So we see Westward by UCLA in the, in the same light. You know, If you respect UCLA, which who doesn't, as the number one public research institution in the world, <laughs> yes, sir. And then you're gonna trust us to do our job of curating what's happening here at the number one public research institution in the world and uncover this research that, you, that we can apply to your life Anyone can join. Anyone that, that's aligned with continual learning, that wants to improve themselves, that respects UCLA, that's a curious mind, you know, we want you as part of the community. Moving into more like um, about you and how you relate to this, what what made you get into this form of um, digital philanthropy? Digital philanthropy. Well, so as I mentioned, you know, I went to UCLA. I went to UCLA twice. And so I was in this position of, as they say, having to eat your own dog food, right? The product I was putting out was going to be something that I would have to serve myself as an alum, first and foremost. Even though I'm talking about anyone can be part of this. Traditionally, the role that I am in is tasked with reaching out to alumni, getting them to participate philanthropically. So I said, you know, what would really make me participate philanthropically? And as a not incredibly young, but young-ish alumni. I'm also aware of, you know, the student debt situation these days, the impact tuition has had on the way individuals view higher education, which is to say it's more transactional. It's more, okay, I went through an assessment of will going through this process of studying at this university, whatever university it is, and getting this degree, will it improve my life? Will it in improve my career potential? Uh, will it in improve my impact if I'm going into social work? Will I just become a more uh, capable person out in the world, out in the workplace? And then you assess the cost of that and the return on that, and you, you go and do it. And so we wanted to meet, I wanted to meet alumni like me and younger than me with that same type of framework and value proposition of saying, okay, if you're going to be willing to engage with us, with us philanthropically again and engage with us financially again, as you did with tuition, and I know you still have student debt, I'm going to then say, fair, we're going to offer you value back. We're going to offer you value back in the same, through the same lens that you originally saw, which is improving your life, helping you grow, right? Feeding your curiosity. The same reasons you originally engaged in that transactional relationship of taking out student loans and coming through the higher ed process. So to me, this is, this is sort of how it came together as a, 
a general framework for the type of product we had to put out. It had to be an exchange of value. It had to be aligned with this way that, that people were seeing the university that had passed through it. As far as then how it took on its current form, it was a whole bunch of influences. I mean, it was, you know, see, watching podcasts just explode, shows like Joe Rogan, watching, you know, PewDiePie do book review on his YouTube channel and thinking our book clubs back and seeing a whole bunch of book clubs pop up. It was about entrepreneurial groups that I'm part of that have private Facebook groups and me getting a lot of value out of those communities. And it was about just throwing these all into this melting pot and saying, I think there's a full program here that is truly valuable, that is truly well worth what we're asking, which is, you know, only $10 a month. We think, uh, I think this is something that's going to resonate with people in, in ways that just a traditional, hey, give back $10, give back 20 bucks wouldn't. So that's the approach I took. That's, that's very insightful. Um, uh, I can feel like I feel I feel my brain growing as we speak. Right now. <laughs> um, I, so build building this program, it's um, building any type of program where you're trying to reach a lot of people and give them value. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. And you talked about having like a team, yeah. um, and you know it's it's not easy to run a team, um, especially like and once you even find the people that are good for the team, it's like managing that team can um, can get difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so how how do you um, go bar go um, about being that leader of a team, and what is your philosophy in running a team? Well, so I think I spoke a little bit to the philosophy earlier with you know on an individual level of each teammate identifying their strengths, focusing on their strengths, making sure their strengths are utilized to the fullest capacity possible. That's going to give them more job satisfaction. That's going to give them meaning in the work that they're doing. That's going to make them feel uh, valued as they should. Now, as far as creating something new like this, this is something that, that I think is unique to what I'm able to bring to organizations, which is I can start creating a vision of, of what this product or what this process or what this marketing campaign will be. I can start creating that in my head. And then it's my job to communicate over and over again, concisely, clearly, the vision that's in my head to each one of the individual players so they know where the finish line is and they can each take their piece of the puzzle and bring it to a head where they all come together in a nice, beautiful product, which is co-owned by everybody. So, for example, my team is half marketing it's all marketing. It's half the art of marketing. It's half the science of marketing. Mm. I have web developers. I have data analysts. I have Google analytics people. And then I have copywriters. I have photographers. I have digital artists, right? Each of them have a specialized skill. And I'm, I'm you know, dedicated to exploiting their strengths. Now, when there's a current precedent of a program, a current precedent of marketing materials, for example, it's pretty easy to take that to any one person and say, okay, your piece of this, you're going to have to alter it this way and they get it. But when you're going carte blanche and it's all up in my head, it's really, really important for me to get into the weeds with these people, but not micromanage, right? Give them enough inspiration that they understand the direction I'm trying to go, uh, but still leave them to have enough interest uh, or enough ownership of the process themselves. And that's just 
a delicate dance. You know, I don't know if there's a formula to that, but it's something I really, really focus on, right? How do you convey that long-term vision? This is where we're going 100 yards down the field, but now all a dozen people on my team, how are we get into the five-yard line, right? And I need to go up and down, up and down, quarterbacking and say, okay, another five yards, another five yards. We're getting close together, close together. Uh, and I, I don't know if there's one secret element to that. That dance that you talked about, is that something that um... – has come natural to you, or have is this something? Is are these skills that you've learned at the Anderson uh, Management School? You, you know, it it came naturally to me when I was. It's it's always come naturally to me, but it's come naturally to me in the way that I used to build it all myself. Mm. This is one of the reasons that I went to business school. I wanted to figure out how to activate groups bigger than just me. So I was mentioning I, you know, self-taught web developer, right? So I would have a vision in my head of the website, what it would look like, the photography, how the menus would work, uh, you know, the music I would host on it or the articles from my book that I would host on it. And I could build it all myself and I'd just go on these coding sprints because I could see the vision in my head and it was just about getting it onto the screen. But there's a limit to what you can do by yourself. There, you can do such bigger things and have such bigger impact when you activate teams. And so really the learning process for me, the innate thing was having the vision in my head and just knowing, all right, I need, to, I need to start painting, I need to start painting and just get every stroke out there. The learning process for me through business school was learning to delegate to each specialized player and get things built 10 times as fast, 10 times as big, right? That was the real learning process for me. Wow, might have to check out Anderson School of Business. Um, <laughs> is there somebody in your life that kind of motivated and inspired you to like go down this path of mindfulness and positivity and like working and leading teams? Man, I, I can't say there's there's necessarily one person. I just have always found that I'm most inspired around other people that think that way, right? The The people that I associate with share the same mentality. They're builders, they're thinkers. They're always thinking what could be, not just what is. And I find that really an exciting space to play in. So it's always just been the books that I've read. So in a way I've been inspired by the authors of these books. It's always been the people I've associated with, the classmates I had in school. Um, you know, I was telling you about a friend I have right now that's, he started a music school uh, or a school for music producers, how to make a living, how to deal with the psychology of being a touring artist, how to build brands. These are just the people that I find are the most fun to be around, people that are creating their reality around them, right? As opposed to being at the uh, effect of the world and the world is just sort of washing over them, they really feel like they are authors of their worlds, right? They're at the cause of their worlds. And that's just such a fun space to play in. And there, there's so many people that, that I think do share that mindset and I just try to associate with, with those groups, generally speaking. I completely agree. I love working with people that are motivated and have a vision and they want to create something and then mm -hmm. seeing them do that is like, hell yeah. Like you're yeah. doing it. Like that's so awesome. And if there's anything I can do to help, like I'll, I'll, I just like supporting these types of people. Um, but there's a lot of people, um, like I'm, we're surrounded by all these talented people. Um, but you know, it's, it's kind of hard to like get your work and your talent and your vision to reach lots of people. Um, and I think social media is an important way you can do that. Mm. What is your philosophy on using social media to reach out to people? What's my philosophy on social media? 
Uh, are you talking about from a brand building standpoint? Are you talking about from a from a personal standpoint? I'm, I'm, I would say brand from the brand perspective. Yeah. Well, you know, we had numerous debates around my office when we were launching this program about what we were going to do in the social world. As I mentioned earlier, Instagram is such a visual medium. And you see the biggest the biggest players on there are lifestyle, travel, makeup, fashion, very, very visual brands. So we were thinking, what the heck are we going to do? Um, what the heck are we going to do with this, you know, more intellectual style content, right? And one thing, one, one trap I really wanted to make sure we didn't fall into was just the content volume trap. Mm. You know, I, I know... I know that many creators think it is absolutely necessary to continue creating and creating and creating because if you take too long off, people forget about you, the algorithms punish you. And I think there's there's potentially something to that. However, I knew for our team that was not going to be a sustainable game plan. So we thought, okay, if we're not going to play the volume game, can we play a quality control game, right? Can, Can we emphasize quality? And... So for us, that's why we really put a lot of thought and effort into the quotes that we were going to share on the account, the curation we we're going to do of synthesizing each chapters, as you were mentioning, into these uh, summary Instagram stories to try to really make it valuable to you as opposed to just the next sparkling stimulus that hopefully we're going to grab your attention long enough that then the algorithm rewards us the next time we post a story. We're going to really try to be a value play. TBD on whether that is going to be a long-term success or not. So far, it's been great. we got a couple thousand followers, very engaged community, some great comments. I get direct messages almost weekly from people saying that they're inspired by the content. So I think that's been great. And ultimately, I think that's the audience that we want to resonate with. Uh, But I'm not going to say that it hasn't been a challenge to think up the type of plan that's going to get us noticed in a a medium that is so volume-driven, visual-driven, you know, et cetera. I I I think that um the the that's a good point of quality over quantity and I think that's something that Westward um on the inst- your your guys is your all's Instagram mm. page does really well um like the room that you do your interviews in is like yeah. beautiful it's a beautiful it's gorgeous, room it's gorgeous right um and then like all the gra- like even on the stories they just look they just look good. They like mm. I can go through them. I can read them all. And even down, which I noticed, this is one of the big things that I noticed was <laughs> on um, the headphones that you use when you're interviewing people have the logo oh, yeah. of Westward on oh, the yeah. headphones. And I was like, those small details, not a lot of people might see that, but I think that really helps. I can tell you're a brand guy. I know you were talking a little bit about brand consistency with your own personal brand. So you get it. You have the eye for it. You know, To me, it's all those little details. Mm. It's the summation of all those that add up to something feeling professional or not, right? Even if you're unconscious of it, it's, it's all those little details put together that then create the sense of professionalism because there is that thoughtfulness behind it. And in these types of, of details that you're talking about, this is exactly what we discussed when we thought about how we're going to promote our media, create our media, what our brand's going to be like out in the you know internet sphere is we're just going to have to go for the quality play and we're going to have to out-quality people by thinking of all these details, thinking about the logos on the mics, thinking about the beautiful room that we can set up in, um, you know, thinking about shooting 15 floors up with Westwood Village out, you know, the windows behind the subjects. 
Um, we thought about these things because we knew it's going to take that level of quality to have us even to, to allow us to stand a chance against the peer volume plays. What what keeps you motivated? Because this this is probably not you know it might seem easy because it's like oh it's on Instagram, but like it <laughs> seems like it's probably like a lot of work um, for you personally. How do you stay motivated every day? You know it is a lot of work, but the first quarter we spoke with Sean Young about motivation and you know he said motivation is a feeling that is fleeting it comes and goes so it's actually more important than trying to motivate yourself every day is when you're motivated can you put together a process a process that is easy to follow that you can just execute on every day almost mindlessly so for me my commute is car i don't drive anymore right i take public transportation i take ubers i take lifts so Every time I'm on my way to or from any location, I can crack open the copy of the book, either on my phone, Kindle app, or the paperback. I can read a little bit. I can take some notes in my uh, notepad. And that's just a habit now. It's a daily habit. I'm reading a little bit of these books every day. I'm taking those notes into the office. And I have a set time on my schedule where I'm going to A, source images for future posts, and then B, look over the quotes that I've pulled so far and, and try to assess which one would be most valuable to the community in an isolated context if you haven't read the overall book. And it's really been that process that has been, that's allowed me to continue this, as opposed to just feeling gung-ho motivated. I don't feel gung-ho motivated every day, but I have a process now in place. I've set up my life where it makes it easy to do it. It's almost easier to do it than to not do it mm. at this point. And that process has been, been, you know, really valuable. Wow. Um, thank you so much for this interview. Just to kind of, um, I mean, even I'm learning so much right now. Um, <laughs> it's great. We've kind of talked about like philosophies in certain specific fields, but do you have any uh, guiding, um, guiding life philosophy? Like, for example, like mine, I would say is that um, don't be afraid to like engage with people on mm. a deeper level. Mm -hmm. Um, because it makes you feel good. It also makes the person you're interacting feel good and be like, oh, this person is like actually cares and is a good person. And that relationship um, can lead you to who knows where. Um, so that's the kind of philosophy that I step out the door. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to be open to people. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's paid dividends for me at least. So do you have anything along those lines that you kind of live your life and follow? So... I can't say that I have necessarily a mantra that I follow every day. However, there there was a turning point in my thinking, and it relates to a lot of what we've been talking about, you know, identifying people's strengths, and, and when you meet them, try to uncover those strengths and look for opportunities. And that turning point was around 2010. I was reading this article from, I think it was David Brooks, the New York Times, and he was talking about sort of a case for monopolies and like, you know what, if you are that innovative, you deserve monopoly status for at least a little bit, right? <laughs> and he then got into this idea of perfect competition is sort of what we aim for in the United States and with capitalist systems. But that sort of implies that competition and is the is the perfect state that everyone is just sort of this race to the bottom. It's like cut out all the margin possible from the producer so that the consumer pays the least and perfect competition is the best state. But he said, you know what? Life, that, that that's 
putting a default state on life that it should always be kind of hard in order to be valuable. You know, he was saying we have this false perception in capitalistic societies and in the United States that what is hard is valuable. And that's not always true. If you've created an incredible innovation and it's running on autopilot now and that's quote unquote easy for you, that's great. And, and you should exploit that. And the way that changed my thinking was that things that came easy to me, I had always assumed came easy to other people. And if it's easy for everybody, then I assumed it had no value. Mm. But when I got into, you know, I, I didn't realize we we're going to talk, talk about business school so much in this interview. However, when I got into business school and we started doing group projects, a lot of the people in my business school teams would say, you know, oh, I hate public speaking. I hate presenting. Mike, can you please go up there and present? I'll do the regression analysis. I'll do all the data crunching. I'll do all the accounting. And I'm thinking in my head, like, wait a minute, you just named everything that I thought was so hard and I was <laughs> dreading doing. And you're saying what is so easy for me is really hard for you and you're dreading doing. And so it, it shifted my whole mindset to think, wait a minute, what's easy for me actually might be very valuable to other people that have uh, different strengths. And therefore, if I can go out into the world and figure out how to just make the best use of my natural strengths, I'm gonna earn more, I'm gonna feel more satisfied, life is gonna be easier. And that sort of, I guess in a way, a philosophy that I live by is listen, if I'm doing something and I'm hating it and it's not working and I'm not making anything on it, maybe I'm just not exploiting a strength or maybe I'm trying to provide my strength in a place that's redundant. And this, this whatever it is, organization, group, uh, business, doesn't necessarily need another redundant version of that strength. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. That's a hot tip if I've ever heard one. <laughs> um, let let the listeners know where they can find you. Um, any plugs? Um... Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram, Westward Mike. That's Westward, like the direction Mike, all one word. And you know what? Uh, if you find me on there, send me a DM that you heard me on UCLA Radio. And what I can do is if you're interested in joining our Westward community, I want people like the listeners of this program as part of our community, I will shoot you a link to sign up for, we'll do, we'll do half off, $5 a month. So find me, DM me, Westward Mike on Instagram. Uh, I'll shoot you a custom link and we'll get you involved. I'd love to have, have your audience you know, involved in what we're doing. Promo code grind mode. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you so much, Mike, for this fantastic interview. I had a blast. Uh, thank you so much, really. My really. pleasure. It's been great. All right, this has been Grind Mode on UCLAradio.com. My name is Furkan Yalsen. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can follow us on Instagram at UCLA Radio, UCLA Radio News. You can find us on Twitter at UCLA Radio. You can follow me on Instagram at Furkan Yalsen. Um, thank you so much I love every single one of you that listens if you're listening you're my best friend alright have a good week everybody bye